1996, I had the wonderful privilege of attending the, the Promise Keepers Clergy Conference in Atlanta, Georgia, at the Georgia Dome. And 40,000 pastors gathered together to worship and hear God's word and, and pray together. And it really was an, an awesome experience. And we got to hear great preachers at that time, like Tony Evans, Jack Hafer, John Maxwell, Henry Blackaby, Max Licato, Joseph Stoll, E.V. Hill. And when Chuck Swindoll got up to preach, he began, Welcome to the Great American Preach-Off. And of course, we all laughed because we knew that's what it wasn't, or that's, it wasn't that. But then from Isaiah chapter 6, in Isaiah's vision of God high and, and lifted up, uh, Dr. Swindoll preached on how we too, like Isaiah, can be forgiven and cleansed of our sins. He talked about the necessity of confession of our sins and repentance. If we want to be godly men and godly husbands and and uh, effective servants of God. And in fact, several years ago, I think it was Jeff Foxworthy, thought it was a good idea to have a reality show that would basically be a preach-off. In the same way that the American Idol has the last idol standing, the last singer standing, and, and the best comedian has the, the, the last one standing, and of course then you have the survivor, you'd have the last preacher standing, who would be considered the best preacher of the bunch. The problem is, how are you going to judge what is good preaching and, and what is not? And so the show never got off the ground, as you can imagine. I do know that John the Baptist would have never won a great American preach-off, not with his message, especially with the introduction that he gave in his sermon. As people were going out to be baptized by him, he kept saying to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You know, I was thinking about that. What if I began this morning? Welcome to this Facebook live stream, you, you brood of vipers. Yet people came out to hear John the Baptist and be baptized by him. Before we look at the Gospel of Luke, I want you to turn to the Gospel of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. The first chapter of Mark is a parallel account of our study in the book of Luke. And before I read the passage in Luke, I want us to hear what Mark has to say about John's ministry. Mark chapter 1, beginning at, at verse 1. He begins, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written, Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now notice what it says in verse 5. And all the country of Judea, all the country was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. That's a big crowd. John's preaching was popular. His message was popular, and they were coming out to hear him, to respond to him, be baptized. And what were the crowd? What were the crowds of people doing? The rest of verse five says they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now turn over to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter three, and we pick up in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter three, verse seven, exactly where Mark had left off there. 
John the Baptist had come into the district around the Jordan River preaching a baptism of forgiveness of sins. And uh, verse 7 says of Luke chapter 3, So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children of Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that we can come together this morning in, in this format, Lord, as we open your word. And as I mentioned at the, the top of this, Lord, with all the things that are going on in our country, all the stresses and all the things that we see on TV that, that would make us fearful, that would make us frightened, that would make us really concerned about our nation and its future. Father, I pray that as we come together in your word this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and in our minds, and you would do the work in each one of us that you want to do. In Jesus' name, amen. John's ministry was simple and straightforward. His sole purpose was to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ, which is the way of repentance. True repentance is God's highway to the heart, God's way to the fullness of God, that we might receive all that God has for us. And there were two features of John's ministry. He called people to turn from their sin, and he called people to embrace the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's repentance. You turn from something and you turn to something. And here in Luke chapter 3, we have a sample of John's preaching. Uh, this is typical of John's preaching, day after day after day, as multitudes came to him at the Jordan River so they could be baptized by him. And In fact, look at verse 18 of this third chapter of John. And here we see a summation of what John preached. It says, So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. He preached the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel means good news. It's good news. And, and what is the good news? that God will forgive your sins. That's what, Jesus, that's what John was preaching. He called sinners to repentance of their sins, to, to forgiveness of their sins, and he told them the good news. God will forgive your sins if you repent and receive Jesus Christ as Messiah and Savior. That's what he told them. He was a preacher of repentance. He was a preacher of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew tells us in his third chapter that John came and said, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Did you know that's exactly the way that Jesus came preaching when he began his ministry? He used those exact same words in his preaching. Jesus said, repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus and John preached the same gospel message. Luke records for us in the fifth chapter that Jesus said he didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Repentance is the issue. If you don't repent, you will perish, Jesus said on two occasions. Repentance is so ignored today. It is so often overlooked and minimalized, but it's at the very heart of any biblical gospel ministry. And so as we have read, John starts preaching. All Jerusalem, all Judea, the region came out to him. They were to get prepared for the Messiah. They began to be baptized by John, and they made some kind of confession of sin, some kind of confession of repentance. But it's apparent, as we read it in John, or about John and in Luke's Gospel, and as we uh, get into to Luke's Gospel, that many, if not most, who came to John expressed a shallow faith, a shallow faith and a faulty repentance. And we see that based on the fact that there was no fruit. There was no evidence of true repentance. There was no evidence that they had ever repented. And John understands the reality of shallow faith. John understands the reality of shallow repentance, the reality of a false repentance. And this sample of this preaching demonstrates the concern of shallow faith and false repentance, and it demonstrates the message that needs to be preached. So the question for us is today, how, how can we recognize real repentance? How can we recognize it as best as possible? How can we see the real thing and separate it from the false and shallow repentance? So first of all, John's preaching shows us what false repentance looks like and what the consequences of a faulty repentance are. Begin reading at verse 7 of Luke chapter 3 again. And so he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And then he says, Therefore bear forth fruits, in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the fruit of the trees, so every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. So first of all, we see false repentance is outward. False repentance is not inward, as true repentance is. John's pointed question, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, questions the motives of his listeners. What was their motive for coming down to the Jordan River where John was baptizing? What was their motive for wanting to be baptized? Why did they even want to be baptized? And John is telling them, even though they may go through the outward ritual of water baptism, they needed to examine their hearts. He was telling them that false repentance was outward. It was not inward. Were they truly repentant towards God for their personal sins? Or were they just following the religious fad of the moment? And by calling them a brood of vipers, he uses a vivid picture that they were well familiar with. The picture behind John's language is that when there was a brush fire, or when a farmer would burn the stubble from his field, any snakes in the grass would escape ahead of the, the flames, and as soon as they were safe, 
they would resume their subtle, crooked, poisonous ways because their nature as snakes had not changed. They were just trying to save their own skin so that they could go on with their snake-in-the-grass ways. In the same way, false repentance is just outwards oriented towards self and not towards God. Now, the faulty, repentant person may momentarily fear God's judgment and quote-unquote receive Christ to try to be saved. You know, I think there's lots of people who go to an evangelistic rally where many go forward and since the person's life is not happy and he wants to be happy, he joins the crowd at the front. But the question is, he has not faced the corruption of his heart before holy God. He's not truly sorrowful for offending God's holiness. He, he does not cry out to God for a new heart that will hate sin and love righteousness. Like Esau, he may regret even with tears that he lost his birthright. Like Judas, he may feel badly that he has betrayed the Son of God for a few pieces of silver, but his repentance is just superficial, it's just outward, it's, it's not a matter of the heart. He has a worldly sorrow that leads to regret, but he does not have a godly sorrow that leads to true repentance. Turn over to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians for a moment. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at the 8th verse. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul mentions a letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. It's a letter that we don't have copies of today, but between when he wrote 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he wrote a letter to the Corinthians that caused them deep sorrow. Apparently, Paul really laid into them. He really told them off. And Paul may have expressed some regret himself for sending the letter. I think a lot of us have done that. We write it down or we, and we send it off or we push send on our email. And then we worry that maybe it was way too harsh. Maybe it was way too blunt. And we don't have that letter that Paul sent to them. And it's often referred to the sorrowful letter because it caused so much sorrow and grief in the lives of the Corinthians. But what Paul said in that letter caused them a deep sorrow. And so he mentions that letter in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says to them, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I think that's once he set it off, and I think he did have some regret. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. God sees through the sinner and goes right to the heart of the matter. And it's not partial to appearance and circumstances and what it looks like on the outside because a person can look all busted up on the outside and sorrowful on the outside about what they have done, but is it just an act? Or are they sorry just because they got caught and they have to face the consequences? Here, Paul calls that a worldly regret. Lots of people regret what they have done. 
They regret that they got caught. They regret that they have to suffer the consequences or, or they hurt other people and they regret that other people have to suffer the consequences or they regret their reputation has been tarnished or they regret that their sin has caused them great difficulty. But it's just worldly regret. And they say they take full responsibility for their actions. But nothing changes. And they slither back into the charred grass. Are they really sorry for what they did? Do they really realize that they have sinned against a holy God? That all sin is against God? Turn over to Psalm 51 for a moment. The 51st Psalm. Psalm 51 is King David's prayer of confession, his penitent prayer of confession. You'll remember that he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then when she was found to be pregnant, he tried to hide his sin by having Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed in battle. And he was killed. In Psalm 51, David is confessing his sin. Verse 1 of Psalm 51. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Now notice what he says in verse 4. Against you, against you, God, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How can God how can David say against you God and you only? David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. As king, David sinned against the entire nation of Israel. The king's sins are always against the entire nation. How could David say against you and you only, God, have I sinned? It's because David knew that all sin, all sin, is ultimately a front to a holy God. It's a violation of God's law. God hates sin because it's the antithesis of his nature, who he is. Because it harms us and it harms those we have sinned against. Sin is an offense against God. It's an offense against God. And we come to that realization as a sinner that I have sinned against God. That all sin is against God. That is called a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. That is true repentance. You see, no one sins against God and gets away with it. No matter how sorrowful it may look or how powerful the person is or clever or wealthy or networked the person is. Or in the case of John's listeners, they were sons of Abraham. And so secondly, faltry repentance assumes the basic goodness of one's heart. We see that back in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 3, verse 8. John said to the, his, the hearers, his hearers, Therefore bear fruits and keep them with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, Hey, we have Abraham for our father. 
John says, For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children of Abraham. You see, the problem is that those who were saying, Hey, we have Abraham as our father. We're good. We're okay. We're okay with God. The problem was they assumed the basic goodness of their human hearts. They assumed that deep down they are good people. That they can trust and follow their hearts. You hear people say that all the time today. Just follow your heart. You don't know what to do, just follow your heart. But the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked above all things. The religious leaders in particular among John's in John's crowd would have agreed that repentance was a good thing for the tax collectors and other sinners in the crowd. But they did not apply to themselves because they assumed that they were good, basically good people. After all, they kept the law of Moses. They observed all the re religious rituals. They tithed their money. And besides, they were children of Abraham. God had promised to bless the seed of Abraham. Oh, they knew that God would judge the heathen someday, but they were not like those despised wretches. But now John, how dare him, does not call them the children of Abraham. He calls them the children of vipers, children of snakes. He preaches the same message to the religious leaders as he does to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. You must truly repent and bring forth fruit in keeping with your repentance. John cuts beneath the religious veneers that says, I don't care how religious your background, your heart is just as corrupt as those who are outwardly sinful. Your pride in thinking that by your own goodness, you can stand in God's holy presence is just as offensive to God as the greed of the tax collectors or the immorality of the prostitute. And you are as much in danger of the wrath and judgment of God. And in verse 9 we see, thirdly, that false repentance will be judged by God. Verse 9. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees, so every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What John is saying to them, you better deal with your sin because it has such immense eternal consequences. True repentance comes out of fear of divine wrath. That motivates it. People coming to John and seeking the baptism that he gave, having to confess the fact that they weren't in the kingdom, that they were outside the kingdom, and needed to come inside by repentance, then they were willing to repent because they wanted to flee from the wrath of God. John was a preacher of wrath. He was a preacher of judgment. And when you're going to chop down a tree because it's not bearing fruit, you know, fruit trees, they get to that point where they just don't produce anymore. And the old trees have to be taken out. Having grown up in, uh, in, in fruit-growing country and, and orchards all over town and all over on the south slope out here, you see orchards, they get old, they die, they don't produce, they're just taking up ground, they need to be cut down. And, and so uh, you can plant trees that will bear fruit. And the first thing you do when you go over to cut down a tree is you, you set the axe over by the tree and you set it down while you get ready to pick it up and cut the tree. John is saying the axe is already there and God is about to swing the axe. And you know the Jews were very much aware of this? Please turn to the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last 
book, The Last Prophet in the Old Testament. And I know there's a Malachi here someplace in my Bible. Okay, there it is. Malachi chapter 3. The third chapter of Malachi. The Jews knew that in the last book of the Old Testament, when Malachi prophesied the coming of the Messiah, that it would also be a time of judgment. It would be a time of fire. When Messiah came, there would be judgment and fire. They knew this. Verse 1 of Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. And of course, we know that the, the messenger is John the Baptist, comes in the spirit of Elijah. And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. It's probably a, a reference to when Jesus came to the temple uh, that the first time. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The last prophet Malachi begins to close off Old Testament prophecy. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he'll clear the way before me, says the Lord. He will clear the way before the Lord, before the Messiah. So the Lord's going to come. He's going to send his messenger, John. The Messiah is coming and before him is coming is his messenger. Then verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Fuller's soap is a washer person's soap, a laundry person's soap. It was often made of lye. It was very harsh. Uh, they used it to scrub very hard. And so it's like fuller's soap. It's like refiner's fire. When Messiah comes, verse 3, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Now this is starting to talk about judgment. Who can endure the day of his coming and endure his judgment? Verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien, the sojourner, the immigrant, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now turn a page over probably in your Bible to chapter 4, the very last chapter in the Old Testament. Verse 1 of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root or branch. The axe is already laid at the root, says John. And down further, the next to the last verse here in the Old Testament, talks about the great and terrible day of the Lord. You see, the, the Jewish people who were coming out to John to be baptized, they knew this. They knew that when Messiah came, it would not only be the fulfillment of the coming promised Messiah, it would be King of kings and Lord of lords who would sit on the forever throne of David and cast away their enemies and throw off the yoke of Roman oppression as they, they saw it. 
that one would only not only be that to him who they sang, Hosanna, save us now. That's what Hosanna says. But they knew it would also be a time of reckoning and judgment, that it would be a terrible day. Isaiah prophesied at that time when Messiah comes, Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. That's what they expected. They were going down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John because they were fearful that great and terrible day of the Lord, the judgment. Now we now, living on the other side of Jesus' first coming, understand the wrath to come is speaking of the final eternal judgment when Jesus comes again. That these passages of Scripture refer now to Jesus' second coming. They didn't understand that, but we still know that if a person does not repent, if a person does not believe in him and have forgiveness of sins, they will perish and face the wrath and judgment of God. When Jesus comes again, he is coming as a wrathful judge to take home with him those who have faith and believe in him. But we can ask the question, who can endure the holy wrath of the infinite God? Who can stand if the arm of the Lord is swinging the axe against him? Who can be thrown into the lake of fire without terrible consequence? Just because God's judgment is delayed does not mean that it will not happen. So now we turn our attention to true repentance and its fruit. We've heard the bad news. Now we get the good news. But the bad news is also part of the good news. But now we get the good news. When John tells his hearers that they must not put their confidence in their religious heritage as children of Abraham, he also hints at their true need, namely that God would impart life to their stony hearts. We read that at the end of verse 8 of Luke chapter 3. John said, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. God had promised through Ezekiel in chapter 36 verse 26, you don't need to turn to it, but he said, God said, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is true repentance that recognizes the sinfulness of my heart and recognizes that I am powerless to correct the situation because of the weakness and corruption of my faith. So I cry out to God for a new heart and He graciously provides what I cannot do. He imparts a new nature to me, a new nature if anyone's in Christ, he is old. He, he, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He imparts a new nature to me, a nature that loves righteousness, a nature that longs to obey him, and he gives me his Holy Spirit to empower me 
to walk in his ways. And just as a tree bears fruit according to its nature, so the truly repentant soul begins to bear fruit according to this new nature. It's a fruit that pleases God, and it's a fruit that is observed and seen by others. You see, the fruit of repentance is a giving and generous spirit. It's a giving and generous spirit. That is the fruit. In Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, as a response to John's preaching, three groups of people, we could call these three sample groups of people, ask, what shall we do? What shall we do? And you might have expected John to say, well, eat locusts and wild honey and live simply as I do. <laughs> but he did not say that. He could have said, keep the rituals in the temple faithfully. Try to live a religious life. He didn't say that. His answers are refreshingly simple and practical. And each answer relates to the second table of the law. To love our neighbors as ourselves. First, we are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And secondly, the second commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's it. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. In our country today, we see people doing wrong to their neighbors on a regular basis. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And Paul says, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. John the Baptist saying is that the fruits of repentance will be seen in the way we relate to others, especially in the particular station of life and where we live and work. So John gives ethical advice to three groups of people. This is the fruit of repentance to these three particular groups. And it's significant that all three have to do with money and personal possessions. Wow, money and personal possessions. First of all, he says, true repentance will bear the fruit of generosity towards the needy. Verse 10. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Uh, the tunic refers to a an undershirt that was worn under the coat or the outer robe. If you have two tunics and you see somebody doesn't have a tunic, then give them your, your other tunic. If you see somebody doesn't have food and you have food, give them food. It doesn't get any simpler than that, does it? Then we ask the question, we're asking the question here, are we generous with our possessions? That is the fruit of repentance. Do we share what we have joyfully or we just give grudgingly? Do we always push for more and then grasp it tightly? Do we enjoy giving to those who are in need? And do we give sacrificially to the Lord? I like what Larry Burkett, the Christian financial advisor, used to say. He said, you can tell what a person's true commitment to the Lord is by simply looking at their checkbook. By simply looking at the checkbook. And secondly, John says, shows us here, true repentance will bear the fruit of honesty without greed in business. Verse 12. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, 
collect no more than what you've been ordered to. In the Roman tax collection system, they really had a, had a racket because tax collectors would bid with the Roman government for the tax business in a certain region, in a certain area. And the highest bidder would get the contract. And then he would be free to pocket everything he collected above his bid. So if he could squeeze 40 more shekels out of somebody and, and the Roman governor only wanted 20 shekels, then he would keep the 20 shekels extra for himself. And so he would squeeze whatever he could. And, and obviously such a system was subject to great abuse. And the Jews hated their countrymen who went into such a corrupt business. But John doesn't tell the tax collectors to get out of that line of work. Rather, he tells them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to collect. In other words, be honest and don't be greedy. Do your job in a fair and upright manner. Whenever a Christian business, you know, whatever your Christian business is, if you're in business, we are to be committed to honesty, to integrity, even if it costs us something. And lastly, we see true repentance will bear the fruit of not abusing power for personal gain. Not abusing power for personal gain. Verse 14. Some soldiers were saying to him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Again, John does not tell the soldiers to get out of that particular line of work any more than, than he would tell uh, our police officer to get out of that line or if we're in civil government or law enforcement. God approves a civil government, which necessarily includes law enforcement and other national defense people. But John does tell the soldiers not to abuse their power for personal gain. Not to abuse their power for personal gain. To be content with their wages. That would not be so easy when you saw your fellow soldiers using the system to fill their own pockets. <laughs> Can we say the same thing about politicians? Using power for personal gain? It's not so easy when you see your fellow congressmen filling their pockets while you're scraping away by the, the low, on the low wages. You know, I'm always amazed when I read those stories about congressmen and women who, who cannot afford housing in Washington, D.C. on their congressional salary. So they sleep in their offices during the week, and then they go home if they live close enough on, on, on the weekends. It would be so easy to rationalize. Everybody does it. It's the way the system works. We can use our power and what we have to get more for us. But the repentant soldier... The repentant politician will not go along with this flow. He or she will practice the golden rule toward others. And they will learn to deal with their own greed and their own temptations by learning contentment in the Lord. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you right now, at this time and in this way, Lord. I pray that if you have brought anything to any one of our hearts and our minds this morning, Lord, where we need to take it and lay it before you. Whether it's a stress or a worry, 
something that's just eating us up, Lord, right now, Father, as you bring that to mind, we bring it before you. We lay it at your feet. Father, we give it to you, Lord. We know we can trust you with it. And Father, we do the same thing if there's anything, any sin that we have put into our minds and into our hearts, Lord, and we really haven't dealt with it. And Father, I pray now that you would bring those to our mind now as well, Father, that we might come in repentance and turn to you, Lord, and give it to you, Father. Give it to you. Father, we pray that we would be able to embrace you, to embrace our Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that in confessing our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, may this not be just something for right now at this time, Father, but as followers of Jesus Christ, as those who embrace Christ as our Savior and our Lord. Father, I pray that we would live a life of repentance, a life of repentance of constantly, consistently turning away from, from sin and evil and unrighteousness, and that we would embrace you, Father, and that we would be quick through your Holy Spirit to confess our sin and that which is keeping us from you, Lord because sin always keeps us from you. And we do not want to live apart from you. And for this we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.